Would you watch this short video before Pastor Dave comes and brings our message this morning? Amen, amen. We have a lot to be hopeful for as the people of God. My name is Dave, one of the pastors here. Good to uh, be with you this morning as we enter into our first week of Advent and take a look at Advent through the lens of the book of Exodus this year, which is a little bit different, a little bit unusual. So uh, let me just start by making a, a statement that I think that will ring true with you. You can learn a lot about someone by going into their house. You can learn a lot about someone by going into their house. How many of you went to someone else's house for Thanksgiving last week? And you might have learned something about them. Uh, We had the experience as a family a few years back to put our house on the market. And uh, the real estate agent came over our house and gave us some advice about what to do to get prepared and get the home listed. And thank God for real estate agents. They are a big help. Shout out to those real estate agents here. Uh, First, though, as she came in, she pointed out some things that were obvious to her, not so obvious to us that needed to be repaired and needed to be fixed up, and we needed a little bit more what they call curb appeal. But then she said something unusual. She said, you know, it's probably best if you don't have a whole lot of these family pictures out on display. And I'm like slightly offended at this point. I'm like, wait wait a minute. You're coming into my house. This is my family. Very proud of my family. We have a a beautiful family. What is the matter with you? It's, It's my family pictures that make this thing feel like my house. 
And she goes, that's exactly right. Your family pictures make this feel like your house. But you want the buyer to come in and make it feel like it's their house. So I need you to remove the pictures and make it a little bit more generic. You see, you can learn a lot about somebody by going into their home. If you come into my house, you'll see pictures of our family. If you go into our dining room, you'll see a picture of our family on the dining room wall. You look around and you'll see different uh, tastes that we have, different likes that we have, different memorabilia, keepsakes around the home here and there. Uh, The books that I read are hanging around the house. The memorabilia that I have is sitting around the house. You can learn a lot about somebody by going into their home. How about you? Uh, If I were to go into your home, what would I learn about you? Maybe there's a certain Christmas decoration you like to put up each year that has a kind of a customized special memory attached to it. Maybe there's other tokens of your personality in, in your home or hobbies that you have that are obvious from visiting into your home. You see, when you go into someone's house, you learn a lot about them. Uh, Today, as we continue our series through the book of Exodus, as we open up to chapter 25, we're going to look at the tabernacle, which is literally God's house. And the question I want you to be asking yourself is that same question. What do we learn about God by looking at his house? What do we learn about God as we look around at his house? And I want you to ask yourself three different questions about this topic today. A what question, a why question, and a who question. What is the tabernacle? What in the world is this building? Uh, Why do we need this tabernacle? And then, of course, who is the true tabernacle? I think you're going to see as you look at this text several similarities between the tabernacle and the Mount Sinai experience. And you'll also see several similarities between the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden. And you'll also see several similarities between the tabernacle and the person of Jesus Christ. If I could recommend a devotional for you this Christmas season, I found one that's called From Exodus to Advent, written by Esther Baird, which helps to see some of the more profound connections between Exodus and Advent. See, long before Joseph and Mary brought Jesus up out of Egypt, the story began with, of course, God bringing his son, Israel, out of Egypt. And long before there was Mary giving birth to the baby boy threatened as an infant, There was a woman named Jochebed giving birth to a baby boy whose life was threatened as an infant. And see, long before Herod the Great gave that famous edict to slaughter all of the infant boys, there was another tyrant named Pharaoh who gave an edict to slaughter all of the baby boys. And so this story of Exodus begins to set forth a foundation, a background upon which a trajectory of images flows in the scriptures that ultimately culminates in the Christmas story. And nowhere is that more clear than the passage today about the tabernacle. In fact, Esther Baird says it this way. She says, the tabernacle that God instructed Moses to build was an amazing blueprint that led straight to Christmas Day, to the coming of Jesus and to the work that he would do. The tabernacle, in all its detail, its specificity, signaled that God not only wanted to dwell with us, but that he would provide a way to do so. And so Exodus is our story as well. That's where we're headed today, and I hope you'll see those connections in the Word of God, but why don't we ask for his help? Would you pray with me? 
Father in heaven, we bow before you. This is your word. Thank you for preserving this amazing set of plans, this, this detailed description of your house. As we look into your house today, would you show us something about yourself? Would you show us something about your son? Would you show us something about your plan even for our lives? And we ask that you'd make our time in your word rich and real. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, movement one, what is the tabernacle? Uh, truth be told, when a lot of people get to this part of the book of Exodus, this is where their annual Bible reading plan tends to start to slow down. This is detail. This is pedantic. Uh, some people might even use the word boring to describe Exodus 25 to 31. I would never use that word. But whenever you look at the tabernacle, you have to understand something. You don't understand the book of Exodus unless you understand the tabernacle. You see, Exodus began with God's children enslaved in Egypt, and it will end with God's children worshiping here at this tabernacle. And you don't understand what God is doing in Exodus unless you understand what he's doing in the tabernacle. So with that, let's take a look at chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You're to receive an offering from me, for me, from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. Look at verse 8. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Okay, let's pause right there, because that was a mouthful. First of all, I just want you to notice that word tabernacle. That is the Hebrew word, it's a verb, really, that means to dwell, or a dwelling, or to abide with, or to reside with, or to stay with someone for a while. Some of you have had some family and friends tabernacling with you this weekend for Thanksgiving. That would be a totally appropriate way to use this word in the Hebrew culture. The tabernacle was God's dwelling. And these next six chapters record God giving a long speech, seven speeches actually, with very specific, somewhat meticulous plans about how to construct the tabernacle exactly as he had planned it, with great precision. And as I read through these six chapters in preparation for this message, for me it felt a little bit like being on the Chip and Joanna Gaines show, or being like on the Property Brothers show. We have like a, a list of building materials, plans, construction plans, furniture. And this part of the Bible feels a little bit like the honeydew list I make for myself before I go to Home Depot, right? Like, let me just jot down, uh, you know, I got to go pick up some ram skin, acacia wood, and this cubit length. I got to get some scarlet yarn over there. Aisle seven has the fine linen, this much leather, that much goat's hair, though I don't think Home Depot has any of these items last time I checked. But this is what this kind of feels like. Now, compared to the action and the drama we experienced in Exodus 1 through 15, all of these details feel a little bit of like slow reading. But I want you to know that there's a reason for the details. 
there's a reason God is giving these details to Moses. In other words, he tells them not just what to build, but how to build it. And the reason is because he wants them to be attentive to these details because the tabernacle is designed to teach them something about himself, and it's designed to teach them something about approaching him, and it is designed to teach them something about the way of salvation. Now, rather than walking through large chunks of architectural plans with you this morning, I'm kind of a visual learner anyway, so what I thought would be fun is to actually take you on a guided tour. So imagine Pastor Dave is your tour guide today. We're going to take a guided tour, watch a 3D video on the screen, and I'm going to describe the tabernacle as we kind of walk through it together, and I think that this will be an enjoyable experience. So you guys want to go on a tour with me? Okay, here we go. We're going on a little walk together. Let's play the video and I'll talk it through. Notice the camera angle here comes in from the outside of the tabernacle area. By the way, there's some sounds and animal noises. Don't let that distract you, okay? This is supposed to be like real life. Notice the sun is setting uh, at this point in the west from behind the tabernacle, which faced east. The reason for that is because in the Bible, to go east was to go away from the presence of God into exile. The tabernacle you'll see here is this tented area. It was the center of the Israelite camp, the center of their worship. They would all camp around the tabernacle, all of the tribes. It was about 10,000 square feet, the outside fence. As you enter into the door, and there's only one door, by the way, there's only one way, this would be called the outer court. And as you enter in the outer court, the very first thing that you'll see is the brazen altar. On the altar, there was a fire that never went out, and this is where they would offer their burnt offerings. Now, for anybody to enter the tabernacle, that would require a blood sacrifice. Theologian A.W. Pink said, there it stood, ever smoking, ever bloodstained, ever open to any guilty Hebrew that might wish to approach it. Hebrews chapter 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, behind the altar was the uh, brazen laver or the bronze basin, which was used by the priest for ceremonial washing before he would enter the tabernacle proper. And one of the things that you'll gather from this passage of the Bible that's abundantly clear is this. God is the one who determines how he will be worshipped. God is the one who determines how we will approach him. God is the one who gets to decide how we can have a relationship with him. Not me, not you. I know that's not a very popular notion in our very pluralistic and tolerant age. But here in these instructions, it's really clear that God is the one who decides the way. He determines the path to approach him. Now, as you, as you go into the tabernacle, you would enter into the, the larger room that they called the holy place. By the way, you'll notice a progression Uh, As you get closer and closer to the presence of God, the value of the materials will increase in terms of their preciousness, precious linens, precious metals, and so forth. The first piece of furniture, as you look into the holy place on the right side, was called the table of the consecrated bread. The bread was baked every week, the day before the Sabbath, 12 different loaves. You see on the the left side the, the the lampstand. I'll come back to that one second. Just a little bit more about the bread. One loaf for every tribe of Israel. And God was aware of and trying to signal to them and signify that he could provide for his children's needs. And so this was a a symbol of, uh, this was not because God was hungry. This was there because God wanted to have table fellowship with us, his people, that he, he, he made a chair, a place for us at his table to enjoy communion with him. That's the showbread. 
Now, as you look on over to the left side of the tabernacle, you'll see there uh, the lampstand. In Hebrew, the word is the menorah. It's an oil lamp, seven different branches. The light on the menorah was to never, ever go out. This symbolized God's revelation of himself and his illuminating presence. It was very dark in there. Over top of the tabernacle, there was four different layers of skins and linens and stuff like that, and that was a symbol of the darkness of our world as we live in sin. But here in this lampstand, we remember that God has made his light to shine in the darkness. He is the bread uh, that satisfies the hunger of our soul, and he's the light that points the way. The priest is there with his garments. You can read about those in chapter 28. Right next to the priest is the altar of incense, and that symbolized the prayers of God's people. As the smoke would go up from this altar, it would be a symbol that our prayers would ascend to the very presence of God. Now, isn't that amazing that God, when we pray, actually hears us and actually listens to us? We've learned this already in the book of Exodus. We can approach God in prayer. Uh, John Newton said it this way, thou art coming to a king large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. So this is the altar of incense, symbolizing that we can have communication in God with prayer. Behind that was the veil or the curtain. And behind the curtain was the, the final room, the Holy of Holies. It was a perfect cube, uh, 10 by 10 by 10. Some say that symbolizes our God who's three in one. As you enter into the Holy of Holies, you'll see the Shekinah glory glowing there, and that was where they kept one last piece of furniture, the most precious piece of furniture, called the Ark of the Covenant. That symbolized uh, the very presence of God, the footstool of God. Around the top of the Ark of the Covenant was, was a crown-like molding symbolizing that God is our King. And inside of the, or on top of the Ark, I should mention first here, there's the cherubim. And that reminded us of the kind of scenes that we have in heaven, of God's throne that are encircled by these different uh, cherubs and angels and, and heavenly beings. Inside the ark, there were three things, the tablets of stone symbolizing our rebellion against God's law, uh, Aaron's rod that budded symbolizing our rebellion against God's leadership, and also the pot of manna that we complained about symbolizing our rebellion against God's provision. But all of those three items, though they speak of our sin, God said, put them in the ark and cover it up. Cover up your sin and sprinkle blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant so that when I look down upon you, I only see the blood. I only see you through the lens of the sprinkled blood. And above the mercy seat is where the very presence of God would dwell. This was called the mercy seat or the atonement cover. And this was in the Holy of Holies. And God said something amazing there about that part of the, the tabernacle. He says this in Exodus 25. He says, And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. I'm not going to speak with you about your keeping of the law. I'm not going to speak with you about how you rebelled against my provision and my leaders. I'm going to speak with you in the place of my mercy. Friends, if you want to know where you can meet with God, we meet with God in his mercy. This is where we find the most tangible, palpable experience of the presence of God and the glory of God. Now, the glory of God in the Bible was uh, the reference to God's beauty, God's transcendent radiance, his overwhelming presence. The word kavod really means his weightiness. Like the apostle John, when he was in God's glorious presence in Revelation, he fell down like a dead man. Sometimes the glory of God just overwhelms human beings with a weightiness of, of his presence. And so this is where God, God would dwell. 
Yeah, I remember when the, the this is going to feel like a hard right turn, but I remember when the, the Challenger spaceship blew up back in the 80s. The president had to take the podium and make a statement to the nation about what had just occurred. I don't remember most of what he said, but he said something interesting in that moment. He quoted a poem, and he said about the astronauts, he said, in that moment, the astronauts, quote, slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God, unquote. Friends, when we think about where we might touch the face of God. It's right here in the Holy of Holies. And this is the ultimate experience of satisfaction and joy that your soul longs for. Psalm 16 says, let me experience your presence. At thy right hand are pleasures, pleasures forevermore. Psalm 61 verse four, let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. In other words, all the pleasures, all the joys, all the satisfactions that you have in your life, all the beauties that you've ever sought after or ever found on this planet earth, friends, everything good that you've ever experienced, those are all just dewdrops compared to this ocean. It is God's glory that your soul longs for. It is God's glory that your soul thirsts for. And here he says, here's where you can be satisfied. Now, I know there's a lot of details. I know that's a lot to take in. But here's the big picture we don't want to miss. The big picture for the nation of Israel is that God was coming down to dwell with his people. Uh, Vern Poitras said it this way, quote, his tent had rooms and a yard and a fireplace just like their own. In other words, God was moving into the neighborhood. And so if you ask the average Israelite what the tabernacle meant, it would probably not be out of bounds for them to answer with three words. The tabernacle means this, God with us. This is the message of the tabernacle. God is literally taking up residence amongst his people. And notice, God is not inviting them back home to where he is. God is taking home to them. God is not saying to us, you need to figure out how to come back to me. God is saying, I'm coming to you. Friends, the good news of the Bible, the good news of the scriptures, the good news of Exodus and the gospel is not the story about how humanity desires to be with God. It's the story about how God desires to be with humanity. And in Exodus, we've already learned that God is for them and God is behind them and God goes in front of them. But right here, we also learn that God is with them. And he is with us as well. God is not just in front of us or behind us. He is the with us God. He is Emmanuel. God has landed. The tabernacle communicates something to us, friends. God has come down. God's presence is dwelling with his people again. See, long before Christmas, far before the manger scene, In Bethlehem, long before the virgin was uh, greeted by the angel saying, you will be with child, right here we see God desires to dwell amongst his people. This is the message of the tabernacle. And this is also the message of Christmas. God with us. Now, there's one problem. Though this is what my heart longs for and your heart longs for, though this is what we would find to be most satisfying, though we would long to be in the presence of God, what we also see here is on our way there, there's curtain after curtain after curtain. There's barrier after barrier after barrier. And we can't get there, 
from here. See, the, the, the plans of the tabernacle, these six chapters, they both reveal and they conceal. They're somewhat paradoxical. They're, it's like a bundle of contradictions. Uh, this is how the Lord comes close to us, and it's also how the Lord puts up barriers for us. These chapters are about how God can dwell with his people, and they are also about how God needs to remain separate from his people. See, these chapters are about how we can come and offer a sacrifice for our sins, but these chapters also reveal to us that we must continually offer sacrifices for our sins without end. And that leads us to movement two. We've seen what the tabernacle is, but now we need to look at this next question. Why do we need this thing? Why do we need the tabernacle? Remember we said earlier, the question on the table today is, what do we learn about God from his house? One of the things we learn about God from his house is that God is holy. The very first thing you would see as you entered into the tabernacle was the veil, the curtain. There was only one way in. There was no back door. We would be staring at this veil in the face, and we would see there's a barrier there. There's a gap there. There's a, there's a, there's a block between us and God, and the reason is because of our sin. And so there's this message that Yahweh is good, and Yahweh is loving, and Yahweh is merciful, but there's simultaneously a message being given here that Yahweh is holy, and Yahweh is also dangerous because we are sinful, and we are a people of unclean lips. And so we see in the tabernacle, you see a picture of this veil. I'll put it up on the screen there for you, if you can show that slide. The veil would communicate to us that we need a mediator, that we, that we need some sort of go-between, that we need some help to get back in. And in case that doesn't feel immediately relevant to your life, the big idea in terms of its theological significance is that the tabernacle reminds us that we are a people in exile. We are a people in exile. I think there's a slide for this, um, if we could go to the next slide. Going back to Genesis chapter 3, we realize that humankind has been exiled from God's presence, exiled away from God's earthly dwelling place, exiled from the Garden of Eden. And ever since that time, humanity has been separated from the very presence of God, and our souls are thirsty, and our, our, our hearts are hungry, and they cannot be satisfied by anything in this world. Right? C.S. Lewis said, if I find in my heart a desire for which nothing on this earth can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for something beyond this world. And so every longing that we have is pointing us towards this reality of exile. Now, some people are really turned off by this. All this religious ritual, all this tradition, all this blood and judgment and talk about exile. Hey, you know, haven't we moved beyond this? This is so, like, primitive. What, what is with this God? I mean, how can you actually take the Scripture seriously? You know, we should just be able to walk right into the presence of God. No, friends, we cannot. And I think deep down in places that we don't always like to think about, we all know this. We all know that we're not fit for the presence of God. One of the movies I like to watch this time of year is A Christmas Carol, of course, by Charles Dickens. You remember that character, Ebenezer Scrooge? Well, at some point in the book or in the movie, the, the ghost of Christmas past allows Scrooge to have some sort of out-of-body experience where he, he shows Scrooge how, how mean and how troubling and how nasty he really is. 
And uh, as he journeys, there's this scene where he comes upon this house, and there's some people having a conversation in this house. And these people are saying terrible things. And they're, they're saying these horrible things as they gather together and talk about this one particular person. They're talking about a certain man. And they're talking about this man uh, with, with language that is so horrible that Scrooge actually has pity on the man, whoever it is that they're talking about, although he doesn't really actually know him. But then all of a sudden, Scrooge hears his own name mentioned in their conversation. And all of a sudden, Ebenezer Scrooge realizes they're talking about me. When they're talking like that, they're describing me. And right then he realizes that these people are saying horrible things about who he really is. And in that moment, he finds out what other people actually think he's like. like. And, And that's when Scrooge says, enough, show me no more. And I think a lot of us can really relate to that. We don't like to take a really hard look in the mirror. We don't really like to look at this veil and recognize our exile. But God is giving us, his people, this gigantic 3D illustration to try to communicate this to us that we have a really, really, really big problem. We are separated from our creator because we rebelled against him. And we left the very presence of God in our sin. And now the book of Isaiah says, your sins have caused a separation between you and me. Come, let us settle the matter. And we have a choice, I think, in that moment. We can either be willing to look with honesty, square in the face at our sin, or we can say like Scrooge, enough, show me no more, and stick our heads in the sand. But the tabernacle is God telling his people, look at it. I want you to see that there's this barrier between me and you. I want you to, he's taking us by the nape of our neck and saying, I want you to look at this. This is what's happened because of your sin. And he's showing his people back then and us today our deepest need. See, the deepest need of the children of Israel was not to be set free from Egypt and slavery. The deepest need of the children of Israel was not the manna that they needed to satisfy their stomachs in the desert. The deepest need was not even the law. The deepest need that they had was their alienation from a holy God and the separation that they experienced because of their sin. And this is our deepest need as well. Pastor A.W. Tozer talks about our condition in this way. He says, our increasing restlessness is caused by being away from God's presence. Deep down, each one of us has this longing, this this desire in our hearts, and the, the desire underneath all the other desires is a desire for a restored relationship with God. But now the good news of the tabernacle is that through God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt, he's now making a way for his people to enter into his presence again through the tabernacle. And the significance of all of this in a way, the message of the tabernacle in a way, was that God is bringing his people back home to the Garden of Eden where his presence once dwelt freely bringing them back to a place where they could walk again in fellowship with God again in the cool of the day. 
When we read the story of Genesis chapter 2, it's no accident that the same stones in the Garden of Eden show up again here in the tabernacle. It is no accident that the tabernacle is garden-like, that the candelabra, the menorah, is shaped like a tree with the buds and the blossoms and the fruit. It's no accident that the language used of Adam in Genesis is the language of the priest used in the Pentateuch. Remember in Genesis 3, God gave Adam and Eve a, a, a command to leave the garden and exile the garden, and then the, the way was blocked by the two angels, the two cherubim? It is no accident that as the high priest would look into the Holy of Holies once a year, he would see the two cherubim, and he would know intuitively, this is the way back to the Garden of Eden. This is the way back home. This is the way back to where we once came from. And it's almost like in the tabernacle, God is recreating his creation and bringing his people back to the beginning. I don't mean to be too technical here, but this section of Exodus is broken up into seven, yes, seven speeches from the Lord, reminding us of the seven days of creation. Seven times God said in in Genesis chapter one, and God said, and God said, and God said. Seven times God says in this section of Exodus, and the Lord said to Moses, and the Lord said to Moses, and the Lord said to Moses. And just as day one began with let there be light, the first day of the tabernacle building begins with the lampstand. Let there be light. And just as God finished day seven with the Sabbath, the Exodus building plans complete in chapter 31 of Exodus with commandments about the Sabbath. This is God bringing a new creation. This is God bringing his people back to the Garden of Eden, back to his presence, where he can dwell with us again, where he can walk with us again, where we can have fellowship with God again. In the tabernacle, God is reclaiming his creation, a story that will begin to spin itself out through the rest of the Bible. The tabernacle points us back home. This is home. This is where you belong. This is what you long for. This is in your blood. Theologian Michael Horton said it well. He said, quote, we are hardwired to yearn to see Eden again to be the capital of the whole earth. That is our desire. That is our longing. And that is what our God is up to. Friends, I hope you never get beyond this reality. I hope you never get beyond the reality that your greatest need in life is alienation from God and that your greatest source of satisfaction in life is enjoying the presence of God again because he has made a way for you to do so. And in the New Testament, we see pretty clearly that he's pointing towards the greatest exodus of all time, don't we? We see pretty clearly that there's a a greater tabernacle coming. This was all pointing beyond itself to something better, something more profound. This was a shadow. Something more significant would come. This is just a picture. But the substance, the reality, would one day come 1,500 years later. The Apostle John said it this way. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word here in the Gospel of John is the person of Jesus Christ. This is what theologians call the incarnation, that that God came in the flesh. Jesus was and is God in the flesh. Just as the people back then 
experience God living in their midst, God living in a tent, God living side by side, just like that. We see the Lord Jesus here taking on flesh and living side by side amongst his people. Friends, if you saw the tabernacle back then, if you walked by, it would not have looked like anything special. It was just a tent on the outside, just ram skins and goat's hair and you know linens. It, 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 you know, on the outside, you really couldn't tell, but on the inside, are all these furnishings, all the glory of God, all these special pieces of furniture. Just like that, if you were in the first century and you walked and talked with the Lord Jesus, if you looked at him on the outside, he would have looked like any other man. He would have looked like any other human being. He was fully 100% a human being on the outside. But on the inside was nothing less than the very presence of God himself. It has been said that the one who made man became man. The creator actually became part of his own creation. Or as Charles Wesley says in the famous Christmas hymn, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold, him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Hark the herald angels sing, glory. Excuse me, to the newborn king. And we know looking back now, all these pieces of furniture point to him. They're all symbolic of him. We don't need the table of showbread anymore to satisfy our hunger. We know that Jesus is the very bread of life who satisfies the hunger of our soul. We don't need the light on the lampstand anymore because it's dark in the tabernacle. We know Jesus told us he's the light of the world and lights our way. The whole tabernacle was a picture of who he is and all that he would do. But it's more than that. Because there's something even more amazing. And I want to show you something so glorious, I can't even really describe it. There are no words. It's just far, far, far beyond anything you can imagine. I'll just let you see it. He made everything, He gave the plans for this tabernacle. He was in the beginning with God. By him all things were made, things in heaven, things on earth. Nothing was made without him that has been made. The maker of the whole wide universe hanging on a piece of wood that he created. This is why he took on flesh. Because only flesh could die. And the penalty for our sin was death. And this one came, the Son of God came in our place, in our stead, as our substitute, as our representative. And all of the judgment of God fell upon him. Romans chapter 8 says it well. God sent his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He's the sacrifice. He's the mercy seat. Hebrews chapter 9 says he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And friends, if you come to him, 
He says, I can take you home. I can bring you all the way into the presence of God. Hebrews chapter seven says, therefore he is able to save to the uttermost all those who come to God through him. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give us second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Friends, all of us fall short. All of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. We're all on the wrong side of the veil. We could all take a rock and try to throw it from here to New York City. We would all fall short. Some of you might throw it farther than others. We would all fall short. That's the bad news. The worst news is that the wages of sin is death. If there's anything that came through really loud and clear in the tabernacle facility, it was that the wages of sin is death. That means that's our paycheck. Now, physical death is a separation of the soul from the body, but what that verse is talking about is a spiritual death, a separation of the soul from God forever. That's the wages of sin. That's the bad news. But the good news of the gospel is this. God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us, that while we were a patient on the table left for dead, Christ came, in a sense, to exchange all of his working blood cells for all of our bad cells, all of his immunity he gave us for all of the virus that we have of sin, and there's an exchange that's there that's a gift. Now, not everyone receives that gift. You say, Pastor Dave, how do I receive that gift? You receive that gift by faith and faith alone. Just like you trusted in that chair to hold you up today when you came into church, you didn't know you were exercising faith in that chair, but you were. Just like that, you place your trust in Christ to hold you up and to pay your penalty so that you can be made right with God. That's faith and faith alone. And for those of us who have already received that gospel message, I want us to enter into the season of Advent and celebrate this greatest story that's ever been told in the whole world a little bit differently this year. I want us to think about it through the lens of Exodus. Here's a few ideas to help you do that. First, let me encourage you to purchase and read the Exodus to Advent devotional. It's available on Amazon. It's $5.99. The devotionals start December 1st, so if you order it today, you could get it on time. And five minutes a day, you could have short devotional time with the Lord on this topic of Exodus and Advent, naming all of the connections and all of the profound richness here that points us towards Christmas. Second, let me encourage you to listen to our Advent playlists. Every week, our worship director, John Bonaventura, will send out the worship playlist in advance on our church communication. And I encourage you to click that link and to listen to these songs of Advent during this season and let these lyrics just settle into your heart. Like when you go to a concert or you go to a symphony and you just let all of the music just wash over you and flow over you, you need to do that. You need to sit with God personally, alone with the Lord, grab your Bible, get the worship playlist, and go ahead and spend some time with the Lord in worship of him this Christmas. The tabernacle was the center of all of the Israelite camp. God needs to be the center of our lives this Advent. Third, my encouragement is to share the message of Christmas with a friend. To share this message with a friend. Who is it in your life that could use an invitation to our Christmas candlelight service this year? Who is it in your life that would want to come out to the Winter Village this Saturday? Who is it in your life that you could be used by God to share with them the greatest news in all of the world that they may not even know what they're missing? Who has God placed in your circle that he wants to use 
uniquely. He wants to use you uniquely to reach out to him this year. You see, the message of the tabernacle was about God's mission. God's mission throughout the Bible has always been the same. Ever since we fell in the Garden of Eden, the mission of God is to bring the presence of God back to his creation. And now God's Holy Spirit actually dwells in each of us who have faith in Christ. And we, like the mobile tabernacle, bring the presence of God with us. So what would it look like for you to join God on his mission this Christmas? What would it look like for you to bring the very presence of God dwelling inside of your heart to those brothers and sisters around you who need this good news of salvation? You are part of his mission. You are the temple of God. May he use you to begin to cover the earth with his Holy Spirit. May he use you to point to this God who is Emmanuel, God with us. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, how grateful we are for preserving these ancient architectural plans so that we could look at them and learn something about the greatest story in the whole world. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming in the flesh and for dwelling, for tabernacling amongst us, for taking on flesh so that you could become a sacrifice for sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your work in our world today, for sending your spirit on the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit might now be a dwelling in our own hearts. And so remind us, dear God, that what's good enough for everybody else is not good enough for us because we are your tabernacle and you reside within. Help us to reflect you and to bear your image all across the earth wherever we find ourselves. Help us to reflect and be a witness for you this year. God with us. We thank you and we worship you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.